0: Hey, I'm Jim Martin. I always hesitate to ask this. I usually make a quick mention at the end of the show. But anyway, well, here it is. We rely on listener support to help fund the production of Adventure Rider Radio. We always hope that if we produced a quality product that adds some value to your life, then you would support us. But in reality, less than half a percent of listeners support, and only about half of those support monthly. We're very grateful for that support. If you aren't doing it already, drop by our website and click on the support button, AdventureRiderRadio.com. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. You know, few want to talk about crashes or get offs when it comes to motorcycles, but today we're going to tackle the elephant in the room. Stay with us. we got a good one for you.
1: I'm Sam Maniko. Simon. Justin Vance. Simon Paybee. Bill Brigou. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson.
2: I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Tech filters, CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, Greenchiliadv.com. We've had a number of listeners ask us about doing a piece on motorcycle crash recovery, getting back on your bike after a get-off or a crash. Now, the subject's somewhat difficult because none of us really want to dwell on crashing or get-offs. I think we all understand the inherent risk associated with motorcycle travel. And I think, at least for most of us, we try to mitigate that risk by keeping up on our riding skills, riding defensively, etc. But have you given much thought to what it's like To deal with a crash or get off after the fact. After a crash, you may have to deal with broken bones or maybe some other types of injuries, hopefully minor. But you may also have to deal with the family and friends and their views on motorcycling. And saying that can be difficult, I think, is like somewhat of an understatement in most cases. Often non-riders have a very singular view of motorcycling and when they hear about a motorcycle crash, you'll often run into attitudes of, well, what did you expect? Motorcycles are dangerous or it's your fault you're riding a motorcycle. Maybe not in those words exactly, but you know the general mindset or attitude. And they'll show surprise or even complete shock when you talk about getting back on the bike again with a look that says, you know, like, haven't you learned your lesson yet? It's interesting. Those same people. When they hear about a hang glider accident or a hiking mishap, mountain climbing accident or bicycle crash, which is usually being hit by a car, or even a dog attack, you know, those same people will say, what a shame. Oh, that unfortunate person, that poor person. Everything in life has risks associated with it. I mean, just think of the risks of any of these things. Flying small planes, cliff diving. Mountain climbing, skateboarding, horseback riding, snowboarding, surfing, swimming, canoeing, kayaking, even camping in bear and cougar country. So many risks. Such a dangerous place to live. But trying to survive without risk is impossible. I mean, when your feet hit the floor in the morning, there's risk. Risk threshold, meaning the amount of risk you're willing to accept, is different for almost all of us. Some will consider things like whitewater rafting or bungee jumping as just fine. Others will say, no way in hell, I'm not going near that. Some will say traveling in foreign countries may seem far too risky. While others will say it's no problem at all. So risk is subjective. So what one considers to be a risky activity can be a totally acceptable thing to another. we have three stories on this topic. The first one is Dave Priggle. Now, I'd like to mention here that it was actually Dave Priggle's email that sort of finally made us decide to chase this episode down. So, thanks to you, Dave. Dave's story is, after many years of not riding, a friend had mentioned adventure motorcycling to him, and he said he didn't know about it. He looked it up, sort of fell in love with it very quickly, did some research, bought a KLR for his adventures, but after only riding a very short time, he had a crash. Now his dilemma, aside from healing a broken bone, is that his family doesn't want him to ride, particularly his wife. They don't want him to get back on the bike again, but Dave is ready to jump back on. Well, in this story, we're going to talk with both Dave and his wife, who, as you can imagine, have polar opposite opinions. We have another story from Andrea Brosnan about crashing in a foreign country, Mongolia. And Andrea's story uh, illustrates some interesting points like dealing with a major accident and not being able to speak the local language, and then dealing with an evacuation that may not be as quick or easy as you would think it would be. There's a lot to hear in that one, too. And then finally, we're going to have Liz Jensen, who gave up her home in Toronto, got rid of her things, and headed off on what should have been a long motorcycle trip to South America, except... She only got as far as Alberta, Canada before she had a major crash and it turned her whole life on its head. Liz is a, an author and a motorcycle instructor. She has a deep motorcycle background and she's got some great lessons for us on this. Now, which of these riders are actually planning to get back on their bikes? Well, stick around for that.
1: My name is David Priggle. I'm from Springfield, Missouri, and I'm a veterinarian. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you.
0: Springfield. Now I'm trying to think, is there, is there not a motorcycle company associated? I think an Indian, I think, uh, but that's a different Springfield, isn't it?
1: Apparently. Small <laughs> city. Our claim to fame is there's a tourist attraction called Branson, Missouri, Silver Dollar City nearby. Wait a and, second. Wait a second.
0: Your, your, your claim to fame for your town is another town that's nearby.
1: Well, um, I, that, well, that's what people recognize a lot. Southwest corner of the state where the summit city of the Ozarks, well, and where the, uh, Hey, where the mother road, where we're supposedly the, uh, um, where the mother road route 66 was really started. Uh, I can't remember how we come up with that connection. So, uh, which I've ridden 66 a lot and, um, So Route 66 and Springfield are synonymous. So that's a big deal for for motorcycle riders.
0: Yeah, for sure. Route 66 is famous around the world, isn't it? There's a lot of people who sort of dream of
1: riding it. I've never ridden it before. I'd love to. Jim, it's amazing how many people um, ride, which I didn't know it, ride, drive, whatever, want to drive down 66 from Chicago to I don't know, does it, go to, it go to L.A.? Or maybe it does. I do not remember where it goes, but, but it's uh, but they a lot of them pass through here. And now our city is uh, one of the older parts of town that was kind of uh, deteriorating. They're now sprucing that up for uh, 66 riders because a lot of baby boomers are interested. And uh, they look at that as a potential uh, demographic to really boost that part of the town. They're going to put it back to the way it was. Well, you're a motorcyclist. Are you a motorcyclist? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I started riding when I was um, about 14, and I rode until I was about 32, got busy, uh, graduated out of college. I dinked around a while before I started college. And uh, and then in 86, I quit riding. And then I just started in uh, October again, when one of my buddies that I hike with asked me if I knew anything about adventure riding. And I said, no. Uh, it sounded interesting, so uh, when we got through hiking, I went home, googled it, started listening to Adventure Rider Radio, and got intensely interested. <laughs> and uh, I'm a cheap guy, so a KLR seemed perfect for me. And I've got a nice little KLR that needs a little work right now, but other than that, um, so I have I have a background. I rode all through college because it was inexpensive. I've had a a three fifty. Bridgestone, a 125 Yamaha, you know, supposed to be off-road, on-road, a 250 Yamaha road bike, and then a Silverwing, a 500 Yamaha was my last bike until I got the KLR just in October.
0: Well, that's a pretty common story. Um, A lot of us, you know, go through life uh, starting out with a motorcycle and then find we get busy with families, et cetera, and and sort of let it drop to the wayside because it it is sort of a secondary thing. At least it was at that age anyway. And then as as you start to get a little older, I think, and the kids uh, start to move out and do their own thing, it tends to send
1: us back looking at the motorcycle again, doesn't it? Yes, and I like the aspect of camping and riding. And uh, as you read different people's stories, narratives and their books and such, I would really enjoy being out on the road by myself. I would also enjoy being with a group. And right now, writing in the United States is, sounds perfect to me. My ultimate right now is to go to Purdue Bay or Prudhoe Bay, I guess it is.
0: Well, it didn't work out exactly as you planned. I know be <laughs> <laughs> because you bought your KLR and you had to get off. Can you just sort of give us a synopsis of
1: that? Oh, absolutely. I was uh, writing to work And, uh, you know, all the gear all the time, right? Well, put on my everything, looked at my boots and thought, you know, I'm going to put those boots on. I'm going to ride eight miles. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to have to take the boots off, put on other shoes, yada, yada, yada. And I made excuses for not putting my boots on. So going down the road, um, it's an expressway in town, three lanes. The third lane is the exit lane. I was in the middle lane and uh, was getting ready to exit. And uh, I checked my blind spot, and uh, what I did that um, what happened that was very unfortunate is when I the instant I averted my eyes, apparently, the truck to which I was going to merge behind had the car in front of it stop suddenly, the truck stopped. and and when I turned my eyes back around, I lost just enough time and I could not get stopped. So I laid the bike down. and uh, I re- really what I remember is, averting my eyes back. And that's the last thing I remember. Actually, I'm, when I say I laid the bike down and slid it, that's based on the police report. So I had a severe concussion, uh, broke my foot and was in the hospital overnight and then came home. Wow,
0: it's very unfortunate, obviously, but laying the bike down, of course, doesn't slow you down. I think that was the, the old adage that if something went wrong, you couldn't stop the bike for some reason, you laid it down. But in fact, your bike speeds up. As soon as you take the rubber off the road, the speed of the bike increases because there's less friction between the, the steel and the asphalt. I assume that when you're saying laid the bike down, that was sort of a result of getting on the brakes, losing your balance and flopping over. Was that it? That's a high side or a low side?
1: Um, it was a low side and um what i'm thinking is because this was my third uh get off or come off whatever you want to call it the first two you know the one was on the 250 yamaha the second one was on the 500 uh, uh, silverwing uh inconsequential to bike and rider um the silverwing was i was moving pretty fast the yamaha it was in town but what i think i was avoiding was hitting the rear end of the pickup head on i think i felt I would be better to slide under the pickup, than smack it head on. Mm. I don't know though. That's, that's a pure speculation. That might be one reason if I laid it down intentionally, but what the police said was there was lots of skid marks and then gouges. So I would guess that you're probably right in that I locked it up and then lost control and it just fell over. So when you're um, in the hospital getting
0: fixed up, how do you feel about riding the bike at that point?
1: Well, I uh, feel a great deal of peer pressure from uh, my uh, son and my wife. Um my son calls me and he says dad what shape is the bike in? And my answer suffering from a concussion was um I know Andy it's custard not ice cream. <laughs> and so so uh, he was really worried and but then about an hour later I was able to uh, communicate uh, successfully. So
0: <laughs> you've lost me there. Was yeah. that just your, your, your delusional
1: speech because of your concussion? Well, yes, because my son works at a, uh, he manages a restaurant that sells custard and I routinely call it ice cream. And since he was scolding me, I think in my mind, he was scolding me for calling his product <laughs> ice cream instead of custard so <laughs> since he was scolding me i went into protection mode of yes andy i know it's custard not ice cream i really don't know and uh, the uh, emergency room personnel said i was very entertaining so that's worth <laughs> something
0: <laughs> that story is going to stick with you a long time <laughs> and your son is yeah. probably going to bring it up over and over
1: yeah we have lots of those stories so he's uh, he enjoys telling stories about me
0: but as far as you were concerned, did you just think, okay, it's just one of those things that happened.
1: I'm going to learn from it and get back on the bike. That day. Yes, that's what I thought, but I, I could not tell my wife that. And so, uh, it's just recently that I've been able to convey that. And I even told her that I would quit riding, and, but I, my heart just wasn't in it. And, uh, she was gone for two weeks and completely out of the country, so I had lots of downtime. Uh, one week I was working, one week I wasn't. So I had one entire week sitting at home, reading uh, Graham's books. I, uh, Sam Manicom. I was uh, YouTubing rides to uh, Prudhoe Bay, and you know, looking at the Dalton Highway, thinking how much fun that would be, and finding a place to camp, and and then wondering who I would meet on the way, and uh, how I, you know, what what I might encounter. So. That got me all inspired. So then my wife returned home, and and I uh, broke uh, the bad news to her. Uh, actually today, so because I thought, well, if I'm going to do this show, I need to make sure she knows that I'm interested in riding again. So,
0: so as far as your wife was concerned, Becky, she she thought it's all over. It's done. You've sort of went out and you tried it. And it didn't work, and and now she doesn't have to worry about you riding the bike anymore.
1: Yes. And uh, there was a wise individual that I communicated with on email and uh, that person said, you ride for your enjoyment, not your wife's or your son's or something like that. And I had never really thought about it in that way. And uh, um, because I've my business is serving others. I was reared that you serve others. And so to actually do things for yourself just because you want to is kind of hard for me. This two weeks that I had off without working was um, the first time since I was a teenager that I had absolutely nothing to do for two whole weeks. And it was really fun and uh, relaxing, reading books, you know. But bottom line, I started to realize that, you know, doing stuff for yourself, not too bad. You can't get too selfish, but there's got to be a medium in there someplace.
0: Before we get much further into talking about how this is sort of built up a bit of a, a thing for you to deal with. I'm curious, as far as the accident goes, so, or the, the crash, have you decided what you're going to do? Or are you just going to, uh, if it turns out that you end up just getting back on the bike, are you going to ride again? Will you just get on the bike or will you seek out, um, some sort of help for, uh, for riding or take a lesson or anything like that? Has there been thought process put into that?
1: You know, I, um,
0: because what I'm at, saying, David, is I'm not saying you're a bad rider at all, but right. I, I just think in in these instances where we have these problems, where we, we have something go wrong, it's, it can be uh, it can be helpful to deconstruct what happened and then say, okay, well, you don't know, talk to a professional about it. How could I have avoided this? How could I make sure it doesn't happen again? I'm just wondering, had you, have you thought about that at all?
1: I've thought about it with off-road riding, but I never had thought about it with highway and as you're saying that, I'm thinking about an acquaintance that I made um, in a nearby town called Waynesville, which is where Fort Leonard Wood is. It's a large military base. And they have professional people that come in and provide training. And the gentleman with whom I've become acquainted that wants to wants me to go on some rides with him, he suggested that I take that training. And that's really a good idea. I know I can find out about it and springtime will be a key time for them to offer that I'm sure. So
0: what's the dilemma at this point, as far as what you're going to do, are you going to ride and and what is the problem with it?
1: Um, well, the biggest dilemma is Beck's concerns. My thoughts are that I most definitely need to wear all the gear all the time. I need to, uh, when I'm riding in town traffic, provide more following distance and, um, be more cautious, get in the lane I need to get in. I don't have to ride on the expressway. I was just doing it because I wanted that experience. I usually take a, uh, a a different road to work. I need to ride on the expressways as well, but uh, taking extra training is an extraordinarily good idea. So Becky, your wife, she doesn't want you to ride anymore? Not at all, most likely, but then she also understands that there's a lot of things that I do that she's not crazy about. You know, I, I used to work too much. I don't do that quite as much, but I'm pretty spontaneous. And she often says that uh, living with Dave Priggle is a new day every day.
0: <laughs> so at this point, when those crutches go away and you're able to get back on that bike again, are you going to do it? Oh, sure. You told her this today. What did she say?
1: Um. Well, she said, well, you know, your wife and your son wants you to stay alive. And I said, I understand that. I also understand that I really enjoy riding and I'm going to enjoy putting the bike back together. It's fortunate that KLR 650 parts are very widely available on eBay and every place else. So I can, I can purchase everything at used prices and it's in good shape. Most of my damage was plastics um, had the wiring harness damaged. So my plan is to spend the time getting the bike working well, which gives me time to think about a lot of things. And, uh, if she is able to, if she, if she convinces me, well, then I'll have something to sell. And because without putting it back together, it was worthless. If I put it back together, I can at least recoup most of my expense. So, um, but I really think I will. It'll be a lot of talking and a a lot of uh, um, deciding. My good friend got me interested in it. He's not bought a bike yet, but he still wants to ride to Alaska. And so if he gets a bike, then she would feel better if I was riding with Mac. So one of her concerns is that you're riding alone? No, she's just concerned that I'm riding at all. Mm. And, And, you know, she... Well, she's just concerned.
0: We've um, arranged in advance to talk to your wife Becky, which is a is a really great thing that she's going to do. She's going to give her perspective because um, I think it takes a lot.
1: Yes, when I asked her if she, I said I've got a really big favor. I told her that one of my bucket list deal. Uh, wishes was to be on Adventure Rider Radio. And I thought I would do something extraordinary. Like, I didn't know what that might be, but it'd be something extraordinary. And I would would keep networking with you and Elizabeth and somehow um, become a guest on the show. And I didn't think it would be through an accident. And so I asked her as a favor to uh, be willing to be interviewed. And she said, well, I don't have anything good to say. And I said, well, that's exactly what we want. We want your opinion. That's what I want. I assume that's what you and Elizabeth want as well. Okay, well, let's talk with Becky. Okay, I'll go get her.
2: My name is Becky Priggle, and I live in Battlefield, Missouri, which is just outside of Springfield, Missouri, and I'm an RN.
0: Becky, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much, first of all, for coming on and talking about this, because I know it is um, stressful, to say the least. It's something that's unresolved and, and difficult to deal with, so thank you very much. Uh-huh. Now, we've talked with David about what happened and, um, you know, he said about his desire to to go on riding. You'd rather he doesn't ride. I'm I'm just sort of curious and and maybe it seems like a a silly question, but uh, what's the fear of it?
2: Just that he would get hurt um, worse than he did this time or get killed.
0: When he first got the bike, when he first bought the, the KLR last year and decided that he was going to get into riding, were you as apprehensive then as you are now? Or is it this get off, this crash that's really brought this all up?
2: Oh, no, I was I was very much against it when he bought it. So um, basically he bought it without my blessing. Mm.
0: And I guess when when he had the crash, you figured that that would be it. That would be the end of it and game over. Sort I was of, hopeful.
2: And, <laughs> Yeah, I was hopeful of
0: that. So the idea is, I mean, the concern obviously, and I think this goes with everyone because it goes with my wife as well and my family. Everyone um, who doesn't ride a motorcycle tends to be very concerned about the safety aspect, and there's no getting around it. It is certainly a higher risk mode of transportation than any, than anything else. Is it is is it something in your background that also has you fearful of motorcycles?
2: Yes, I've taken care of many patients. Uh, that have had, you know, terrible motorcycle accidents. And then I've never worked in the ER, but I know that uh, the, um, you know, incidence of people being in a motorcycle accident and living is not very good. They, mm-hmm. you know, it's just your head against the pavement uh, when you crash. So, and that doesn't fare so good most of the time.
0: But to be fair, the ones that you see are the ones that are actually seriously hurt, not the ones sort of that have had to get off or crash and, and got up and walked away. Correct. That's mm-hmm. right. Do you feel the same way about sort of any sort of dangerous activity?
2: Um, some, but um, just, you know, more with the motorcycle just because it's, um, we've been in a car crash also. And so you just have a lot more protection, you know, with a car when you're in an accident. Of course, I know accidents happen all the time, but you just have more of a um, protection when you have a car rather than, you know, the motorcycle.
0: So not so much David's skill level, but more the vehicles around him.
2: Correct. Yep. And the fact is that, um, I think people, I mean, heard of a lot of other people that have had motorcycle accidents and they said that it wasn't really their fault. It's just that people can't see them. Mm.
0: Yeah, that, that is um. It's one theory I've heard is that people are not programmed uh, to look for motorcycles. They they really tend to look for vehicles, which is right. why you don't notice telephone poles and mailboxes as you're driving along because you're you're programmed to look for vehicles. Because quite often, when there is a, a crash, motorcyclists will say, "I looked right at them. They looked at me, and they still turned in front of me." Uh-huh. It's something right. you you have to ride defensively. But we just finished interviewing a, a woman named Vonnie Glaves, and Vonnie has done a million miles on her motorcycles, I say Uh motorcycles more than one, never a crash. Wow. So, I mean, there are, you know, it's, it's not like every motorcycle goes out and crashes, but, and I'm not trying to change your mind here. I would never try and do that of how you feel about it. And nor that I even uh, think that I could, but I'm sort of curious now, if David goes and gets training and feels that he's uh, better equipped to ride the motorcycle, does that change the way you feel about the motorcycle?
2: Not really. Uh, I still, uh just don't feel like it's a safe thing
0: i think everybody who rides a bike understands it's more dangerous i know there's right. a, there's a specialist with motorcycles that says um uh, he says that according to statistics you're you're 27 times more likely to die in a motorcycle accident than you are in a car accident uh-huh. So it's certainly, um, there's certainly a higher risk there, but I guess the thing is with, with life, there seems to be a risk with everything, whether you're snowboarding, you're skiing, you're cycling. I mean, it seems like there's, there's risks all over the place. And I, and I guess as a motorcyclist, like from my point of view, for me riding, and I would never say this is anyone else's, but. I think there's a, there's, um, sort of an acceptable risk you, you, you see for doing the things that you love to do. Sure. And I think yeah. with that for myself, what I do is I, I go out of my way to be extremely safe. I mean, the, uh-huh. the and, and that's what Vonnie Glaives as well said. I asked her, I said, what's your secret to success with like with no accidents in, in all those miles? And and she says, number one, the space you've always got to keep a, a cushion around you. And said, number two, she said is always be aware. You need to be a hundred percent aware. Right. So, I mean, um, like I say, I'm I'm not trying to convince you, but um, it's an interesting sort of situation that you guys are in and um, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out for you. Right. (laughs) I hope you're both satisfied with the result. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Becky. You're welcome. And that was Dave and Becky Priggle. And you have to give Becky credit for coming out of the show and talking about an issue that's... It's so tender for her and David at this point. And as a side note, David has emailed since we talked and said that he's already signed up for riding lessons when he gets back on the bike. Well, this next story comes out of Australia from Andrea Brosnan, who um, decided to meet with her husband while he was on a longer trip. For a short section of it, she rented a motorcycle and went off on an adventure, but things didn't turn out like they planned.
3: is Andrea Brosnan. I am from a little town called Kalani, which is 150 kilometers west of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. And at the moment, I work on my farm.
0: Andrea, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jim.
0: Well, Andrea, you're a motorcyclist. How did you get into motorcycling?
3: Well, the town that I grew up in here is um, split along very much horse riding and, and motorcycling lines. Uh, I actually ended up on the horse siding ride right of the equation, uh, probably because I was forced to rather than from anything else. But um, I actually started riding a motorbike when I moved to the UK when I was 19. And it was the best way to get around. It was cheap and uh, it gave me a sense of freedom that you really couldn't get when you were just living in London, surrounded by thousands of people every day.
0: Now, I gather you're, you've met your husband. He was already a motorcyclist, or did you guys get into it together?
3: Um, he certainly had a history of riding motorbikes. Uh, I didn't realize quite how passionate he was about it until about seven years into our relationship. But we've certainly developed together, and um, he was the one that really encouraged me to get back in it and um, and be brave.
0: What's your husband's name?
3: Uh, my, My husband's name is David Hicks.
0: David Hicks. Well, David and you decided to get married and then go on an adventure from London to Magadan. The wedding, was this all planned? A marriage and then a motorcycle trip?
3: Well, the, the marriage was planned, um, <laughs> that's, always, <laughs> trip... that's
0: good to do it that way, isn't it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> the motorcycle trip was actually, um, it was planned way before we decided to get married.
0: Mm. Okay. So you, you, just, you planned the motorcycle. I'm, I'm now you've got me curious about this. You, you planned the motorcycle trip and then decided to get married afterwards. Hey, since we're going to do this trip, why don't we get married?
3: Uh, yeah, well, it's, it was, um, it was the year that my husband turned 30 and i had always said that when you turn 30, you should have a year off to figure out what you want to do and who you want to be. And, um, he decided that, uh, he wanted to ride a motorbike from London to Magadan and I had to say, Hey, that sounds like a brilliant idea.
0: Why a motorcycle trip from London to Magadan?
3: Um uh, it was probably inspired of course by uh the long way round a little bit even though he hadn't actually seen it. Um uh, <laughs> people had talked about it a lot. Um we had a boss as well, the lovely Helen Black, who when she turned 40 she actually rode a motorbike um by herself through Iran and Turkey. And it just sounded like something that could be done. Um and why not? Really?
0: Okay. So you've planned the trip. You've decided to get married, which I think is a great thing. And maybe listeners will start to do this now. They figure if they plan a trip, they may as well get married as well. Maybe I'm still not seeing the connection there, but in any case, (laughs) you you plan to do this trip, you pack up your bikes and and what happens? You're from Australia.
3: Yes, yes, yes. We're from Australia. So my husband um, left, he shipped his bike uh, in May. And, um, he actually left me at home and, um, he left from the UK, um, and traveled through Scandinavia and then down through Russia. And I actually met him in Mongolia.
0: Okay. So he's already on the trip by himself. He's traveling alone.
3: Yes, yes, yes. He met some people on the internet um, and that didn't quite work out as well as he thought it was going to. So uh, after three days into the trip, he was actually all by himself Um, and the extent of his overseas travel until that point had been a two-week trip to the US and a couple of trips to New Zealand um, and one to Malaysia. So he wasn't very experienced. Um, The longest bike ride that he had had, had been from Sydney to Brisbane, which is about fifteen hundred kilometers. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a culture shock for him.
4: But
0: for you, you you've already been travelling a lot. That was sort of something you grew up doing.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um I I've lived sort of all over the world. I lived in the Middle East. I lived in Canada for a little while. Um, I lived in the UK for an extended period of time, um, and travelled all over Australia. So I probably encouraged him probably a little bit too heavily to actually go out and go travelling. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the learning the learning curve was pretty steep for him, particularly, um, and it was cold, of course, uh, no matter how many times I explained to him that May was still going to be cold in the Northern Hemisphere. Was, uh, was too many, but he, uh, yeah, he found it quite challenging but had an awesome time and particularly riding by himself uh, because, of course, as we know from everybody else's reports is when you're by yourself, uh, people actually approach you much more
0: there's one thing about the cold, isn't it? When, when you're picturing, when you're in a warm place and you're picturing somewhere cold, it is sort of difficult to get that feeling. You always think, well, I'll be okay. My hands might be a little cold. you know. I'll be fine. But until you actually get there, it doesn't really sink in, I think, a lot of times.
3: That's exactly right. And, and trying to explain that when I lived in the UK, it, it used to still snow in April, and that he was going on the first day of May that it was still going to be cold. It just did not compute.
0: (laughs) You were going to meet up with David. What did you do? You ship your bike there? Did you rent a bike?
3: I rented a bike. I rented a bike from a group called Ride Mongolia. So I had actually organized to rent an XT250, which is the same little bike that I ride here in Australia. Um, when we arrived, uh, I actually got a phone call that said, oh, the XT's not back, but we've got a DR650. What do you think? So I um, I'd had the discussion. I had a bit of a think to myself and I, I, um, I just thought, oh, well, we'll just do it. I'm, I'm this far away from home. I've come all this way. I'll, I'll get on the bike. I'm fully licensed and I've got insurance. So let's try it and see how it works out
0: it's a big difference. The 225 is a very manageable bike, the 650, tall, heavy. I mean, they're, they're quite different animals. H- had you ridden a bike like that before?
3: Oh, uh, I'd ridden a bike like that before on the farm. Um, but never in traffic, never, never anything, you know, any more than just poking around after some cows really.
0: So now you're on the 650, it's loaded up, I assume you've got bags on it and your gear on it. hmm And you head out and, and, and how does it start off?
3: Yeah, so it was a ridiculously hot day in Olandbetar and um it wasn't long after the uh, big festival of Nadam. So people were actually heading back out from the major city out to their back out to their farms. Um and the traffic was incredibly heavy. Uh, the bike was heavy, it was hot. Um and it took about 2 hours to actually get out of Olandbetar to the uh, to the outer suburbs. So it was uh, it was quite stressful, um, but, you know, mixed in with the stress and anxiety was the fact that I was actually in Mongolia riding a motorbike, something that people dream of for, for so long and it had just happened to me sort of on a whim.
0: You covered uh, 600 kilometres into it. How many days were you on the bike?
3: Uh, we'd hired the bike for seven days, so um, I was ended up on the bike for five days.
0: You ended up having an accident. Uh, the two of you. Can you tell us about that day? How did that start off?
3: So we'd uh, we'd woken up in. Um in a hotel because, of course, it had been cold and rainy. And uh, so previous to that, the days had been pretty tough. It had been raining in Mongolia, which doesn't happen an awful lot, but there's no formed roads really apart from the main roads. And so there had been a lot of mud and a lot of dropping the bike and a lot of being cold and wet, a lot of laughs as well, uh, but quite challenging um, times. So we'd actually stayed in a hotel, Um, woke up. It was uh, looking quite smoky. There was a big fire in the Taija Um, forests uh, in Siberia. And so it it was quite smoky, but we were happy to get on the road. We were heading out to see a Buddhist uh, monastery, which was pretty cool. Um, So we rode out there, uh, we came, we were heading back and I was quite tired. Um, Part of the issue with the DR was that every time I dropped the bike, which happened quite a lot, um, we had to um, bleed it to start it again. <laughs> so every time I dropped the bike, it took about 40 minutes to get it going again. Oh, you
0: mean it was flooding out when it fell over?
3: Yeah, uh. yeah, yeah. It wasn't, look, it, it wasn't the best bike, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we tied it up with wire and made it work because, of course, you know, it's all, all life's all an adventure. So we had decided um, when we actually came to the junction of the formed road I looked quite tired, and and David had said to me, "Okay, so what we'll do is we'll we'll head this way. We'll head to Balkan. Uh, when we see a shop, we'll stop. We'll get some food, and then uh, we'll just duck off into the step, and we'll just camp from there." And I said, "Okay, fantastic." So um, smoky, uh, long day, and um, and we rode from there, and and I don't actually remember a lot. That's that's actually my last vivid memory is that conversation. So, um, what we think has happened is, of course, um, David was riding in front of me because uh, he was a more experienced rider, at the, definitely at that point. Um, and we came down into a valley, and the smoke cleared. And I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a lookabouter. Um, and I, I do love a beautiful vista and so probably what has happened is I've got excited and had a look around at this beautiful valley and um, David has actually seen that there's a shop on the on the right hand side um, he has pointed to the shop um, and I have seen him point I've looked at the shop uh, and by the time I looked around again basically I just ran into the back of him so um, from a Complete freak sort of point of view. Uh, I ran directly into the back of the motorbike, directly in the back into the back of his tenerae, Um and then went sailing through the air, um, and and hit the ground. Um, broke the handlebars of the DR, just basically smashed the DR up, and smashed myself up at the same time.
0: You went completely over his bike and then hit the ground. Yeah. Yeah, and so this isn't just a a minor get off. This is a massive accident, and as you'd pointed out when uh, when we discussed this earlier, just uh, when you discussed it with the producer Elizabeth, you'd said that the thing is you're in a foreign country, and this is this is really a a huge thing uh, to deal with. All of a sudden, when you're into an emergency situation, so now you don't know you don't remember what happened next. But from the story that you got from David and, and the others, what happened?
3: So, um, I must have been born under a lucky star, Jim, I tell you that, um, because uh, David, I wanted to take off my helmet, because of course, and you're told, the first aid for motorcyclists always say, don't take off the helmet, don't take off the helmet. I wanted to take off the helmet, and he, uh, David was saying, no, you can't, and I started yelling at him, and I pulled my helmet off, and I was sitting, lying on the road, he wouldn't let me get up. And, uh, and Dave was saying, you know, we're just going to wait here. We're just going to wait here. Um, we'll figure something out. And I was, of course, was saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just need to sit here for a bit and then we'll get back on and we'll keep going. <laughs> so as I was lying on the ground, the very first people on the scene were a German couple who had um, rented a four-wheel drive to drive around Mongolia for their holidays. And, um, and she was a paramedic. So she did first responder on me um, until, as is happens in Mongolia, a, a, a Mongolian doctor just appeared out of nowhere carrying a fishing tackle box full of uh, painkillers and dosed me up on I'm not sure what. David is, still doesn't know what. Um, but the gestures were basically this, this will help her. So, um Sorry, yeah. you said
0: fishing tackle box there.
3: yes, actually a plastic fishing tackle box. Um, He was not wearing a shirt because, of course, that's how you show that you're rich in Mongolia in the summer is by not wearing a shirt. Um, So (laughs) David was slightly suspicious, but he was a doctor. Um, They figured that out in Russian. And, um, yeah, so he gave me painkillers and, um, and then the German couple went on their way when I was in the care of a doctor. And then, um, I was lying on the road for about two hours until a, an ambulance, and I use the term pretty loosely, uh, an ambulance came to take me to the, uh, the first hospital that I ended up in.
0: And how far away from the major center are you at this point?
3: Um, we're about 450 kilometers, but that takes about six and a half hours.
0: In the ambulance.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I went to the closest town. So I went to basically a field hospital in the back of a Land Cruiser troop carrier. Um, the field hospital took one look at me and said, no, no, you'll have to go to Balgan. You'll have to go to a bigger hospital. Um, so then I was in the second, Ambulance, uh, which was slightly improved, but a small Isuzu van sort of type of um, uh, ambulance, and that's when I get my memory back is is being in that second ambulance.
0: Now, how are you communicating the whole time? You know, you're you're meeting all kinds of people here who are I'm, I assume poking and prodding and wanting to know what mm-hmm. happened. You know, and I mean that's some of the first things they ask you in an accident: what happened, so they can understand the mechanics of the impact and know what to look for. How did you explain yep. it?
3: Uh, it, it is all about mime. <laughs> so uh, if, I, um, if I ever give up on farming, I could probably become a mime artist <laughs> because <laughs> that's what you can say. Uh, motorcycle, of course, that's the international language for a bike, Mo- motorcycle, and then uh, the gesture of brake, and then pointing to, to my pelvis, you know, and, and touching and saying, ow, ow, or I was actually crying. So that, that helped people.
0: And what's running through your head at this point, you know, the, the, you're remembering this, this ride, what's going through your head? I mean, obviously you're concerned that that's, that's a given, I think, but is there real concern about where you are?
3: No, the, ironically, the real concern was uh, for my husband. Um, I had a terrible concussion and I would pass out and then wake up about every 20 minutes. And the questions I was asking David was, oh my God, what happened? and he would explain what happened and i would say are you all right <laughs> and then more importantly is the bike all right is your bike all right
0: <laughs> but, but and david was okay
3: <laughs> yeah yeah he um he had bruised ribs but that was it so his bike uh the the uh, swing arm needed to be replaced but pretty much it was it was tire on tire like it was it was perfect Um, so he was, he was fine. So he was my guardian angel, which I'm, I'm eternally grateful for.
0: Now you're in your second ambulance, you're heading for Ulaanbaatar. Is that where you're headed?
3: Uh, I'm heading to Balkan at this moment. Yep. So, uh, we go to this tiny little hospital, um, in the middle of nowhere, uh, and, uh, they put me in an x-ray, they x-ray me and, the uh, doctor on call just basically said there is no way that she can be here. There's no way. We have to send her right now to, um, to Ulaanbaatar. Um, so I get in my third ambulance um, and it's about four and a half hours from there to Ulaanbaatar. So, um, of course, we couldn't get in the ambulance until we had paid up front. Uh, oh, interesting. To, yeah, to get in the ambulance. Interesting,
0: yeah. How much, how much did they want?
3: Um, it's about the equivalent of 140 us dollars.
0: Mm. And you know, see, that's not all, that's not unusual. I mean, you know, people may immediately think, oh, it's because you were in Mongolia. But I mean, I know that if you were to walk in an emergency room in Canada, and I know I saw, I was with a guy who did this, who was from another country. Um, I think they wanted $750 just to look at him. That, that was the, mm-hmm. the initial assessment fee. And, it's, and it goes up from there. I mean, hospitals mm-hmm. are expensive. You know, medical is uh, care is expensive.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't uh, – the, the care was, was free, basically. They didn't even want to see any ID or anything. They were just straight away, just wanted to help me, which was amazing. But the, uh, but the ambulance was interesting. And, of course, Mongolia is an interesting place, a fantastic place. Um, we actually stopped on the way to hospital, uh, to Ulaanbaatar, to get uh, petrol. Which uh, David had to pay for, so that was um interesting um, <laughs> so the very long um, drive, and on the drive, I of course had been um, had some really wonderful painkillers, so I wasn't terribly worried about things at all. Um, I was trying to locate an expat hospital, um, having lived in the Middle East, I knew that uh, the best place for me to be was going to be the expat hospital. I contacted, I found on the internet, um, SOS International, they have a clinic. Uh, and then I got David to actually ring them. They said, oh, she's been in a traumatic accident. We can't help her. You have to go to the National Trauma Hospital. So that's where I ended up.
0: And how long have you been on the road at this point since the accident?
3: Um, 13 hours. About 13 hours. Yeah. Yeah. All together.
0: So that by then, after the 13 hours, you're in Ulaanbaatar, um, you're yes. at the National Trauma Hospital.
3: Yes, yes. So the very first thing they wanted to do was um, they received the x-ray that had been taken in Balkan. So through the email, uh, they wanted to do surgery on me straight mm-hmm. away. Um, we didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, but they basically took me straight in and were prepping me for surgery. I, at this point, was uh, hysterical. I was just had visions of, of being in a developing country, getting major surgery, and not something that I wanted to happen. Yeah. Um, well, well, so, just give a,
0: give a description of what you're looking at there. I mean, what does a hospital look like? Do, does it look like just what you would expect as far as hospitals go?
3: No, no. Uh, it looks like if you took an old school or an old public building from the 1950s um, and didn't update it, didn't upkeep it, and then um, had a group of people who were waiting around, who were bleeding onto the floor and screaming in pain, who were just sort of all there, and uh, a group of health professionals who who were trying their very best, but... um, You know, there's not much you can do when you have a stretcher and morphine, which is really, really what they have. So,
0: Do you have a choice at this point or do you just let them operate?
3: Uh, Well, uh, you always have a choice. Um, you might not like either one, but you always have a choice. Um, so I was actually holding on to the wall saying no, you're not no, no, no. And David had to physically restrain the um the nurses and say, You are not operating on her. You are not operating on her. you not I don't know what's happening, but you're not allowed to do that. Um so there was an interesting row between a um an Australian man who was visibly upset and a Mongolian doctor. Half in Mongolian, half in English, about what was actually going to happen now. But David was was extremely uh, adamant that they weren't going to operate on me.
0: Now they want to operate because they've they found a crack in your pelvis. This, that's the reason, correct?
3: Uh yeah. So, um, so I have uh, broken my symphysis pubis, which is the front of your pelvis. Um, generally, they call a traumatic accident anything that's over. Um, twelve mil. So, if the if the gap is twelve mil, that's a traumatic accident. Anything over twenty mil um, needs surgery. And the um, my break was forty mil.
0: So, is it life threatening at this point? I mean, are they trying to to tell you that if you don't do this operation right now, that you're going to die from
3: this? Yeah. So, generally, um, this particular accident that I had has a thirty eight percent fatality rate in Australia.
0: Mm. In Australia, yeah, so,
3: yeah, yeah. Let alone did you mongole. know that at the time? No, thank goodness, I did not. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that happens with this particular accident is um, internal bleeding, and it is very, very difficult to uh, to diagnose internal bleeding when it's in your abdominal cavity until basically it's too late. Um, so. My, my adamance that they weren't going to operate on me, um, really probably the only reason that I survived that is because I'm, like I said, born under a lucky star or or something because for all intents and purposes, I should have had that, um, surgery in Mongolia. I should have had it within 24 hours of the accident.
0: So the fact of the matter is an accident of this caliber usually causes internal bleeding, um, which Mm -hmm. needs to be attended to obviously immediately because it's the same as bleeding on the outside. It's like you said, just sheer luck that you didn't have internal bleeding. I guess that's incredible.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's usually this, this type of um, injury also usually happens to young men, um, so I also, all the gear, all the time is what I keep saying. Um, I'm also adamant that my safety gear actually um, did such a good job of, of, um, of protecting me.
0: David is telling them, no, you can't operate. What happens?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, they take me up to the ICU. So uh, everywhere else in the hospital is pretty dire, but the ICU had um, recently received a whole lot of funding and equipment from the French government, so it's um, it's like being you know in in a hospital anywhere else apart from you know the, the structure of the building, but the but the uh, the equipment was amazing. so they took me up to the ICU um, got me on a drip. Um, Gave me a catheter and um, I started feeling better from there. (laughs) Uh, So I wasn't actually sure. We still don't know what sort of drugs they were giving me. Um, But one of the first things they actually give you in Mongolia when you've had an accident or you end up in the hospital is a shot of vitamin C. Lots of the drinks and lots of the food, the packaged food is Fortified with vitamin C because of course um, it's difficult to get fresh fruit and vegetables.
0: And at this point now you're going to have to be thinking about evacuation. If you're not going to let them operate, you know you have to go to a hospital and get some serious attention. So what do you do?
3: What I did was um, the next day uh, I got David to actually contact the embassy so we could get some help from them Um, and they were fantastic. A a young man named Christian who's um, at... Uh, the Australian embassy in Mongolia uh, that had only just opened in February in 2016. And um, so uh, Christian came and he uh, suggested that we speak to SOS international to the uh, international um, cl- uh, the expat clinic. Um, so David worked with Shirley Rochelle, who's the director of the clinic uh, and she was fantastic. She actually helped us with um, translations, uh, working with the doctors Um, because uh, uh, World Nomads um, Insurance wouldn't let me leave until I had been cleared by a doctor to fly. Obviously, they wanted to get me out of there. I wanted to get out of there. But there was so many things that were lost in translation. Um, Some of the older Mongolians speak Russian. uh, The younger Mongolians generally speak French, and particularly in this hospital, it was French. Um, David's French is non-existent. Mine is how to order coffee. So actually working through the translation was incredibly difficult.
0: It has to be difficult as well. I mean, you're trying to get a doctor's certificate of approval, so to speak, for you to leave and get on a plane, but they're already telling you need to have surgery.
3: Yeah, yeah. So... Um, they were going to let me go. I had an amazing um, an amazing uh, doctor over there, a uh, Mongolian doctor. She actually uh, paid out of her own pocket to send me to go and get uh, a couple of CT scans so she could actually diagnose and give the information about how best to move me and how best to get me out of the country. Um, she spoke very little English I didn't speak any Mongolian, but she understood my hesitance and also she just basically wanted me to be okay with everything because the high levels of anxiety when you're in pain are a terrible terrible mixture, and um, she was charged with my care so what happened then um, David spoke to Shirley at SOS International Clinic and um, and after two days of being in the hospital of getting nowhere and me just getting more and more upset, uh, David just decided that we were going to move, that I would move to um, to the expat clinic. So that was my fourth hospital.
0: <laughs> and what does the doctor say when you want to leave? Are they telling you, fine, go ahead? And-
3: um, my doctor had worked with SOS International previously, and she was happy to hand me over to the care of the uh, doctor who was uh, in charge at the clinic, um, Dr. Benita. Uh, She is actually an orthopedic surgeon in a former life, so that was incredibly um, lucky for me. She had had been given full access to all of my scans, all of the x-rays, all of the information, and and she was happy to accept me, uh, to look after me until I could... um, be flown somewhere to have surgery.
0: Now, what is SOS International?
3: So SOS International are a network of uh, clinics and hospitals that are located all over the world that generally look after expat um, patients. Uh, generally, you're, if you go on assignment, so you end up in South Africa or you have to live in Abu Dhabi, your company will purchase a uh, health insurance for you and uh, you will then have access to the clinics. Uh, They also um, will take people like me who (laughs) end up getting hurt Um, and what happens is um, they look after you in a clinic and then generally they either want to fly you to Germany or to China or to I think it's Bolivia um, to do any major surgery or anything like that. So So, they have planes
0: they're not capable of doing anything big they're uh, like uh, certainly no surgery
3: no 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 so they have you know they have x-rays and all of those sorts of things so that's where david's uh, broken ribs and strange ribs got diagnosed Um, so they'll look after you sort of that sort of thing but anything big uh you they fly you to one of their hospitals
0: um and what's the next move
3: so um, I, I ended up in the, the lap of luxury then. It was from the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, so the clinic, the SOS clinic was wonderful. Um, I was looked after like an absolute princess. Um, and there was when the fight started basically to to bring me home.
0: What do you mean a fight?
3: Um, so my insurance, Um. Of course, insurance companies all over the world want to make sure that their costs are minimal to bring you home. Um, I had to be stretched so I couldn't actually sit. So that meant I couldn't be on a regular commercial flight. Um, So I spent 10 days in the hospital, uh, in the clinic, um, waiting for my insurer to identify a level of payment that they were happy with to get me out of the country. So that's incredible.
0: Um, I mean, yeah. you know, when you think about it, you're, you're sitting there, this is, this is a major injury and it, it does come down to dollars and cents when, when it comes to any insurance company paying anything out. Um, we all know this, but with something like this, I think we always have this idea in our head that when it comes to, you know, our, our being, they'll, they'll take care of you. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't, but I mean, that's a long time for you to sit and wait.
3: Mm. And particularly given that um, I was in the situation, very, very fortunate situation that my support person was right there, that David was working so incredibly hard to make sure that I was happy, you know, that I was comfortable, that everything was going to work. He spent, I'm not sure how many dollars, ringing the insurance company, um, faxing things, getting things translated, uh, making sure that everything was all above board. Um, I'm not sure how anyone could possibly do that if they didn't have somebody there to help. Uh, the insurance company were no help with that at all. They they wouldn't help with translations. They certainly didn't help with the police. They, you know, they, none of that. Um, so it was really, it was a shock. It was a shock to me uh, how unhelpful the, um, the insurance company was. Um, They paid. It was no problem with getting paid, but just being incredibly unhelpful and it felt as though being deliberately obstructionist.
0: How long did it take you to get on a flight?
3: So I was booked on three different flights and they were cancelled twice. So I got on the flight and left um, Ulaanbaatar on August the 8th.
0: So you were three and a half weeks waiting to fly home.
3: Yes. Yep. And during this time, of course, I was most concerned that, um, that the summer was running out and that David would not get to finish his trip. He wouldn't get to Magadan. So I was, that's,
0: that's a concern of yours (laughs) while you're laying in hospital waiting to go home for surgery after all this, wouldn't you just pack it into that point and say, okay, it's done
3: ah, no, 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 (laughs) that's not, (laughs) that's not how I work, I guess, Um, because I knew that the recovery was going to be so long. And really when you're lying in a hospital bed in and out of consciousness, what's, you know, what could he possibly do apart from be there, which is the internet means that he was always there anyway. Um, And I wasn't going to let him give up on his dream just because just because I had had this stupid accident, um, and so so I was absolutely adamant that he had to uh, keep going. So that was very interesting. he was um he stayed at the Oasis guesthouse, which is an overlander sort of adV um, hub in Ulaanbaatar. Um, and had some amazing support from people there who uh, really were incredibly kind and generous to me and to him, um, helped him find parts for the bike, uh, helped him get everything sorted. Um, his his boots got stolen. <laughs> so um, so had to find new boots in Batar, and everybody sort of really – came together in, in the community, I guess that, um, adventure riders are, um, to help him get going again. Um, there was a lot of shaking of heads about, I can't believe, how can you possibly leave her? How can you possibly go? But the people who know us knew that that's exactly what was going to happen. I was never going to let him come home. Uh, it was more important to me that he finish uh, his adventure and um, when he was finished, he could come home and look after me because I was going to need help for a long time.
0: Was he on board with this plan when you tell him that you want him to keep going?
3: Was he on board with the plan? Uh, he nodded. Uh, I have since been told that he was definitely not on board with the plan. Um, he was speaking to my mum. Uh, back home in Australia and saying to her, she wants me to keep going. <laughs> and my mum said, of course she wants you to keep going. You've got to keep going. But, uh, but his mum had said, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, you should probably come home. Um, so he has said that it's one of the hardest. It is actually, he has said it's the hardest thing he's ever had to do was to ride away and, and leave me in a hospital bed. Um, but I knew I was leaving the next day or the day after, so it was, everybody wins. You know?
0: He left you there to get uh, on the flight, etc. Yourself or, or with whoever was helping you there, they put you on a plane and flew you back to Australia. What happened?
3: Ah, uh, so I had a private jet from uh, Ulaanbaatar to Incheon in, Korea, in South Korea it wasn't really the way I thought I'd ever get to be on a private jet, um, but, <laughs> but it was uh, certainly an experience. I had to travel with a nurse and a doctor uh, as part of the insurance um, proviso. Uh, they actually flew, flew in from Shanghai. Um, the flight to Incheon was, was fine. Uh, Then I had to board a commercial flight, an Air Korea flight, uh, just on a stretcher basically with a curtain around it in the middle of everybody else going on their holiday trips to Australia. So that was strange and weird. Um, It really wasn't organised very well. It was was just pretty much a nightmare. The doctor and nurse that I had didn't actually have any painkillers, so I ended up um, in a stretcher. For eight hours with no painkillers. I sent them to the um, pharmacy to get some ibuprofen <laughs> with my own money. I was like, just go and get me something. I don't care. Let's make sure it's the strongest I can get. Um, but finally, when I got home to Australia, the ambulance, the paramedics came on to the plane because I said I wasn't going to be moved until I'd had some pain relief. And I have never been so happy to hear an Australian accent as I was. Um, the paramedics came on and the lady held my hand and she said, what's your name? I said, my name is Andrea. She said, my name's Andrea too. She said, we'll look after you. So we're going to get you some painkillers. Um, so they dosed me up with the painkillers and got me, off the, uh, got me off the plane, put me in another ambulance and took me to another hospital. <laughs> Um so I was assessed uh, obviously straight away um and then the um surgeon came and had a conversation with me and he actually said oh, I don't think we need to um we need to give you surgery you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, what, through all the jostling, you know, the, the gap closed up or something, what
3: happened? <laughs> yeah, or, or someone came along with a magic wand and fixed yeah. me. <laughs> mm, so one of the problems is that the uh, when you have a CT scan, they sort of put you in like a little canoe. If you've ever been in one, it's sort of, it's like a foam canoe to get you into the into the big washing machine thing. Um, And if you are a a delicate, petite little flower, um, you don't get squished by it. If you are not, you do get squished by it. So that squishing actually made it so the CT scan said that the gap had been closed. So it came out and said, so the gap was 18 mil instead of 40 mil. And I had to fight with the doctor to... um, who have surgery.
0: This is in Australia.
3: <laughs> in Australia.
0: Yeah, in Australia. So even just going back to when you said <laughs> that, that when you heard that Australian accent was the best thing you ever heard, you probably thought everything's <laughs> going to be fine from here on in. I I can relax and just let them take mm-hmm. care of me.
3: Mm-hmm. That really was the feeling. I thought, oh, thank goodness I'm home in Australia and everything is going to be just fine. Everything is going to work out. Um, and it turned out it was, it was not that way. We, which um, is
0: a which is a really good lesson, I think, for for people to hear because unless you've had problems and had to deal with, with hospitals, medical things, I think the assumption is that you just go in and you give over the decisions to the, the people who are giving you the care. And what you don't realize is that because it's, it's you, it's your body, there is so much that you need to be in control of, if you can, while you're in a hospital that can make the experience better. And knowing that and knowing something about what's going on through the whole process is just a huge asset.
3: Yeah, and that's absolutely right, is that uh, there is, you know, there's a large assumption that you'll go into the hospital and they'll know everything about you and they'll have read your chart and they'll have done this and done that, and that certainly is not the case. Um, If you are conscious and you can get the information, get the information, you know, get a notebook, write it all down, start asking questions, be really be really aware of what's going on around you, uh, because that may well just um, may well just save you in the long run.
0: So, did they send you back for another CT scan that showed that the gap was greater than what they thought? <laughs>
3: uh, I actually got a second opinion, uh, much to the chagrin of the uh, of the surgeon. Um, I got a second opinion. I um, spoke to my GP, who they hadn't actually contacted, which which absolutely floored me. As soon as I got back to Brisbane, um, my GP is, is literally in the same building as I was in. And they hadn't spoken to her about my history. They hadn't given her any information that I was had an accident or anything like that, which was very odd. So I rang my GP and she said, well, he sounds terrible. Let me sort this out for you. <laughs> Um, so that was fantastic. It was, you know, middle aged women for the win. So we got a second opinion. Um and the uh the surgeon, the second opinion surgeon said, Oh no, she definitely needs surgery. There's no way that you would leave that. So I uh I had the first surgery, um, and then obviously I've been on complete bed rest. Um so I had eight weeks of lying in bed. I went to have a scan and um, it hadn't taken the um the fixation hadn't taken and so I had to have surgery again. So yeah. I got moved to a different hospital um and had basically had the uh the millions of titanium plates and screws put in, the one that they give to the fixation they give to young men straight away. So um yeah, so that happened on the twelfth of September. So that was my final surgery on the twelfth of September.
0: You rode six hundred kilometers, as I mentioned. And David went on to ride twenty nine thousand kilometers mm-hmm. What was the rest of his trip like? Did he find it difficult? I mean, clearly we should be talking to David here, but i mean did he <laughs> did he find it difficult did he did he have any trouble continuing on knowing what you're going through?
3: Uh, he had made uh, he had been traveling with a another couple of blokes, um Vic and Tony before he'd gotten to Mongolia and um, they had gone on to Back up into Russia, and he actually basically rode really hard to catch up with them so he could ride the BAM road with them. So he had lots of support, which was really good. Um, Of course, when you've been through trials and tribulations, the people that you've been through them with are are understanding and very kind. Um, So he did find it difficult. He said that riding away, like I said, riding away from me when I was in hospital was the hardest thing that he's ever done. Uh, But knowing that I was cheering him on, (laughs) knowing that I wasn't going to accept failure as an option, really made it easier for him to finish and be be proud of finishing.
0: How much time has passed now?
3: So it's just over four months since uh, I got out of hospital. Uh, it is six months today since I had the accident. It's, um, it's very bizarre. I am continually writing the date as um, August 2016 because it just feels to me like that part of my life has just been edited out. How do you mean? Because uh, because I was under the influence of some very very major <laughs> painkillers, um, it feels like a dream. Um, even though I've learnt so much about myself and learnt so much about what I'm capable of, uh, still feels like it should be August and I should be able to finish 2016 with all of the plans that I had, instead of now being in January 2017, um, and you know and and figuring out where to go from here.
0: How do you feel about getting on a bike now?
3: Oh, I'm incredibly excited. When I was recovering, uh, David actually built me a um, a daybed outside on our veranda here at the farm. And my little bike, who I call Jaso, um, was just parked just near where I could see him. And the days were magnificent, of course, beautiful blue sky days, highs of 24 degrees Celsius. Um, and all I wanted to do was get out on the bike. Um, I've been watching, had been watching the Dakar highlights and the GoPro footage of Dakar uh, when they're on the bikes. just makes me want to get on a bike. I'm really, really looking forward to it,
0: <laughs> really. You don't feel there's going to be any apprehension?
3: Oh, look, definitely. There definitely is apprehension. Um, remembering I did grow up in a horse family. And so the fact that if you fall off a horse, you've got to get right back on again means, well, I fell off the bike. So I've got to get right back on again. It's, um, I'm anxious. I'm scared. I'm like you say apprehensive, but I'm also really excited because the way that I feel when I ride a motorbike, I don't get that from anything else. Um, and I'm not prepared to give that up.
0: Was there any time through all this where you thought that's it? I won't ride again.
3: No, <laughs> not even when my mum was in front of me crying, going, I'm not sure you should ever get on a motorbike again. Um, no, get really, one go what she, it.
0: what she should have been saying is, you know, I'm not sure you should be looking around when you're riding a motorbike again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That, that is the point is you should pay more attention. And of course the joke now in the family is, is that I have to always go first. I can't follow anybody. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, that makes sense. Lesson learned. (laughs) So lessons, what lessons did you learn with this other than being in front?
3: (laughs) The lessons that I learned from having my accident in Mongolia are never travel without insurance ever. Make sure that you've got the best safety gear that money can buy. Don't be afraid to ask for help and that if you put your mind to it, you can survive anything.
0: The insurance thing is huge, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. private jet flying, how would you do that on your own? I mean, what what kind of money are we talking here? Even if you just had one doctor and your private jet, that's just an expense that the average person would never be able to afford. So you would have been, you really would have had to accept the surgery there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Would have just had to go with anything that I was given. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually had to sign the invoice that said, yes, these are the days that I spent in hospital at the, at the clinic. Um, And it was 110,000 US dollars.
0: And you pay that with your credit card?
3: No 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 uh, the the wonderful Shirley had actually organized it she she dealt then with the insurance company so um she just sent the bill straight to them but I had to sign it and say I was there and I thought hooray for insurance hooray for insurance
0: <laughs> Yeah I I I've, I've heard travelers say before if you can't afford insurance you can't afford to go on the trip because people often complain about the price of insurance uh,
3: you know that I I think it was 350 Australian dollars you know, three hundred and fifty Australian dollars as over at three hundred and fifty thousand, you mean? <laughs> oh no, no, no. My my premium was three hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. I thought you meant the total bill. I thought you were saying the total bill was oh, so. yeah.
3: Goodness. And I don't even know. And I, I have private health insurance here in Australia as well, and, and I can't even imagine how much money that cost as well. So it's um I think that that if you ride motorbikes Um, and you're going to do anything apart from, you know, some quiet wheelies in your backyard. Um, you need the insurance, just, just get it, pay for it and, and, um, and, and figure it as a, as a cost of, of, um, riding just the same as you do as a helmet, boots, gloves and, and, um, you know, a, a loud exhaust.
0: So what's the date that you're going to be getting on your motorcycle?
3: Fingers crossed I will be getting on the motorbike on the 27th of February. Um, We are in training for a a two-and-a-half-week trip to the southern states of the U.S. during the total eclipse. So we'll be going for the eclipse and we'll be riding some of the tat as well. So Hang on a second, my- hang
0: on a second. You, you're not even fully recovered here. I just, I just had to catch up <laughs> to what you were saying here. You're planning a trip to go ride a trail in the, in the States on a motorcycle?
3: Yep. If you don't have something to work toward... You know, you, you're just, you're just standing still. So, um, so I'm, I'm working with my physio and working with the exercise physiologist and my Pilates instructor to make sure that I'm strong and I'm healthy and I'm, I'm good to go.
0: Does anyone, uh, your family and friends tell you that you're crazy to get back on a bike now?
3: They all tell me that I'm crazy, uh, maybe not for getting on a bike. <laughs> um, I'm
0: sort of picking up on that.
3: No, look, they've all all known me long enough and I really think that it's it's something that brings me joy. It's something that brings my husband joy. Um, I love to travel and really traveling on a motorbike is the most perfect way to do it. So they could call me whatever they like, they wouldn't stop me.
0: Andrea, I am so glad you were okay. And I think you have a, a great story here that that really has a, a lot of lessons in it. And um, I wish you the best of luck and hopefully we'll hear from you again. I would love to get a note from you when you're in the States on your trip.
3: No problems, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. Adventure Rider Radio has been um, such an inspiration to me. I uh, I love the credits. I love the the sound of the bike starting up. It always makes me smile. So thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Andrea. No problems.
0: And that was Andrea Brosnan from her farm in Australia. Scott Wright is the owner of IMS Products, and Scott himself is a, a serious rider, racer too. As a matter of fact, he's a former Baja 1000 winner. And Scott stands behind his foot pegs that are made for adventure riders. IMS Products is a household name in the racing scene. They're known for their fueling systems and their shift levers, and now for a range of some really nice foot pegs. I was talking with Scott a few weeks back, and he was telling me just what goes into the design of the foot pegs. And we talked about different things like the design of the teeth and the design of even the angles of the undercut on the underside is meant so that it doesn't hold mud in there, so that the mud actually drops out. It's called a watershed design. But... He said that they even tested them by crushing them in a press to the point where the inner parts of the peg were touching. And when they released it, there was no damage except for the mark where the two sides contacted. Now, of course, you and I will never do that to our foot pegs. We'll never put them to that kind of abuse. But it does say something about the, the IMS dedication to quality i mean I, re- I really like that these are cast certified 174 stainless steel foot pegs that not only look great but for me and I'm, i have them on my bike they've done a lot for the feeling and handling of the bike it's, it's incredible so made in the usa with a lifetime warranty www.imsproducts.com drop by the website have a look at the pegs and make sure you tell them you heard them here on adventure rider radio Liz Jansen is a well-known motorcycle enthusiast. She's the author of two books, Women, Motorcycles, and The Road to Empowerment, and Life Lessons from Motorcycles. She's also a senior instructor in the motorcycle program at Humber College in Ontario, Canada. And as well, she's a motorcycle adventurer. In 2014, after 45 years of riding, she had a motorcycle crash. And through this experience, even with hundreds of thousands of miles spent on the road and being an instructor, she's facing for the first time her own challenges about riding a motorcycle after a crash.
4: My name is Liz Jansen and I live in Orangeville, Ontario, and I am a writer, a writer, a speaker, and adventurer, I
2: suppose.
0: Liz, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
4: Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Now, you
0: started riding back when you were a kid. I understand it was your brothers that got you into riding.
4: They did. I grew up on a family farm, a fruit farm in Niagara, in Ontario. And when I was 16, my brothers, who were younger than I was, got a little Honda 50 to ride around the farm. And somehow, I don't even know how to this day, they let me ride it. That was my start in motorcycling. So that's a while ago.
0: Well, now motorcycling is your passion. I mean, you've got a business, you work every day with things to do with motorcycling. How did you make the transition from nursing to motorcycling? I mean, and I'll bet a lot of people would say that's an odd transition because nurses tend to have a lot sort of a dark outlook on motorcycles, I think, for the most part.
4: Some of them do. I had a few transitions in between there. So I went from nursing, I moved into occupational health and safety. And from there, I moved into human resources and corporate training and development. And so my nursing actually didn't last for very long because it wasn't really something that I felt was right for me. When I was about 48 years old, I decided, I knew, I knew for quite a while that the, the career that I had, as good as it was and as as wonderful as my employer was, it was really not the role. I, I It wasn't fulfilling anymore. Even though I was having, you know, doing a lot of really interesting things, working with great people, it just wasn't fulfilling anymore. And at the same time, my marriage was also ending. Uh, so within eight months, I had left my marriage and I left my job. I knew that I wanted to transition. That was actually the big transition. And that was in 2003. I wanted to do something that was more fulfilling and more meaningful to me personally. Those, uh, those roles that I had were great at the time, but they they'd served their purpose. So what do you do when it's August and you don't have any work, you don't have any prospects, and you need to think. You go for a motorcycle ride. So that was my first big motorcycle big. Uh, two months, I went across Canada and through the States and I decided I needed some thinking time and I would use that time. And that's really when I started the motorcycle things. I had a set of criteria that whatever I did next had to fill. And it had a lot to do with my values and what I wanted to do and with the rest of my life. And I actually first started in motorcycling, I was doing some, I had a business that was doing motorcycle tours in Ontario. And that was good too. And that was for a while I learned a lot. And I also got more involved with the industry and some volunteer roles and some advocacy. I started teaching in the program at Humber College at that time. And always it was the experience that you could see people getting we know what that is when you start to ride a motorcycle and how much it means to people and then what it enables them to do and and how you don't just have those you know that confidence and that that exhilaration and the things you learn about yourself on motorcycling doesn't stop when you get off a motorcycle you could carry that off into whatever you're doing in life, personal, professional, wherever it is. And that was the transformation. That was really what had me hooked and how I could facilitate that. So motorcycling was, I love it. And don't get me wrong. It's, but it it feels like it's a gift for me. It's something that I do and it's something that I can do my work through is motorcycling. And I really just continued with that. I Then I got into writing um, from that because um, it was just a way, again, an, an interest. I didn't really know I would become a writer and an author. I've written two books now and I'm working on my third and got into doing some webinars, some, some uh, one-on-one training, working with groups, a lot of different things, always centered around motorcycling and what that teaches you about yourself and how you can use that in other areas of your life.
0: Well, you, you mentioned the motorcycle program at Humber College. You're a senior instructor there. So you've, you've got heavily involved with this. What other things are the things you're doing with your business?
4: My business now has evolved where it's primarily and, and a lot has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, so right now I'm focused completely on writing and writing my next book. That's going to change once, that's, once this, this is finished. But that's what I'm doing right now, and then after that, I'll be doing some more. Um, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing. We'll find out when I get there.
0: Wow, that that's a nice lifestyle, isn't it? Not being sort of hemmed into something you don't want to do to just be able to do what you're do what you're interested in.
4: This is one of the things that I've learned, and particularly that I've learned in the last couple of years. You can have the grandest plans that you want; those plans can change. I've also learned that it's how important it is and I think this comes with as we get older too. Life is short and it's important for me to have it meaningful. I don't really want to be doing other things that don't mean anything to me. I've been there, done that and that didn't work for me. So it's more important to do to to let my heart lead what's next and also, you know, my mind has input into it. Don't get me wrong. But it's more, What what is it that I want to do with my life? And then how do I go about doing that? That's very different than when I was, I call it my before life, when I was married and working in a corporate career, when everything had to be so planned and structured. And even when I started my business, it's very different. But that didn't work for me. And and so this works. And yes, it's very nice, but it's very different. It's It's not... It's not structured. It's not like I can say what I'm going to do uh, next because I know that the opportunity will come to me. And also in looking back, I found that the things that worked best for me were the things that came to me, not the things that I went after. So, lessons.
0: This is your third book, as you said, that you're working on. You've, you are two other books. Uh, One is Women, Motorcycles, and the Road to Empowerment. And the other one is uh, Life Lessons from Motorcycles. What's the third book about?
4: The third book is about, my working title is called Crash Landing, which I guess we're going to be talking about. But it's really, and it wasn't going to be called Crash Landing when I started out. It's about learning how our ancestors have shaped our behavior, how our behavior is, you know, what lives in us that we're not even aware of and determines the choices that we make and influences our behavior. And I was really interested in finding out about that because I know those experiences live in me. And I know also that my ancestors had, you know, very strong background and that had to be influencing me some way. I had dissociated from that quite a bit throughout my life. And I knew that it was still affecting me. So when I was looking for, you were talking about going from, you know, something structured to letting go and, and living more by doing what your heart wants to do. Um, I was also looking at patterns, trying to identify patterns that I had had in my life that didn't work before. And those patterns came about because of things that had been taught to me. And so I wanted to understand that.
0: You mentioned uh, the accident that we're going to be talking about or the crash that we're going to be talking about. Uh, That was in 2014. Can you tell us how that happened?
4: Sure. One of the things, in 2014, I turned 60, and that's another big threshold, I think. And so that was another reason why I was interested in, you know, the wisdom of my ancestors, if you will, and finding out more about that. So that's when I decided I can't do this any sooner. I'm really interested in going on an extended motorcycle trip and finding out the answers to some of these questions because you do your best thinking when you're riding and you meet the, uh, you know, you meet the people that you need to meet and you get different perspectives. So I set out, I got rid of everything as you do. I was planning to be away for 12 to 18 months. And so divested myself of my car where I was living, um, got rid of stuff. And I set out on August the 1st, which Incidentally, was the same day that I left my corporate career. I thought that was a uh, a symbolic day. For some reason, it's become that. And so I was going to go through Canada and then down. I had the first three months, sort of a few dates pegged in uh, across Canada and down through the States. And then from there, I was going to go into Central America and South America, about Not just over three weeks into the trip, I was in Alberta and I was in a place right near where my dad spent his childhood. And I was taking a detour, a shortcut down. an uh, Alberta gravel road, I call it, because it's not like the kind of gravel roads we have here in Ontario. It was really deep gravel and it was like golf ball size. And I'm used to, I've used, I've ridden in gravel, I've taken courses on, on riding in gravel and off-road. And I thought I would know how to do it, but I ran into trouble because I really didn't handle my motorcycle right. I was terrified the whole time. I was, it was eight miles on this road and I, I was terrified the whole time, but I kept telling myself that I could do it. And when I came to an unexpected 90 degree turn in the road, I wasn't prepared for that. And that's when I crashed. And I totaled my motorcycle and fortunately, I didn't total myself. Um, I just, you know, I I was injured badly, but it was the motorcycle that took the brunt of it.
0: It was a big trip you'd planned. I mean, to go to South America—that's a a large adventure, a long adventure. Then you find yourself, you know, having this accident or or having this crash. You had a um, shoulder injury. I mean, you're basically done at that point. You're sent back. uh, You have to go back home to recover.
4: My shoulder was shattered. I had really shattered. I landed on my left shoulder, and so that was really. I knew they. I knew it was a big problem because it wouldn't move. It was just sort of hanging there. And I really didn't have much else. I had hurt my thumb on my other hand because I'd held on to the handlebars. And so when it stopped it, I tore some ligaments in my thumb. Um, But other than that, that was really it. That was enough. But Um, As soon as I I got up, unfortunately, I didn't ever lose consciousness. I landed and I stood up and I turned the motorcycle off. It was still running. And I remember looking down and thinking, well, this sure changes my plans. And uh, you're in shock at that time, right? But I knew then that uh, things were going to be different. I didn't know what they were going to be, but I just knew I wasn't going any further for a while.
0: So you were kept off the bike while you're recovering. What was your thought process about riding at this point? I mean, was there any ever a point where you thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to get back on the bike.
4: Never. Not for a second. I knew that my plans had changed and that the trip that I was on had changed dramatically. But the reason for my trip was to research how we're shaped by our culture and how that makes us who we are. I was still on that journey. That was the reason for my quest. And I was on it on a motorcycle. It was part of that journey. And I knew that I would have to finish it on that. And it was just, it was just part of it. I just knew there was never a question. I knew I would get back on it.
0: So it doesn't phase you. You're you're still a motorcyclist at that point, and as you say, you're going off, and your journey continues. You you sort of you just took it in stride.
4: Yes. What else are you going to do? I had, you know, I'd had the accident. I'd broken my shoulder, and I thought, well, there must be this, and it's not even a detour because it's not even a detour. It's part of my journey. It's just not part that I had planned. Who would plan for that? And now I've got to deal with this, and. I wasn't angry. I never have been angry at it. It was just, um, it, it sounds almost surreal, but it was just the way that I felt about it. It was like, this has happened. Now I have to deal with this. It's part of my journey.
0: Now, it wasn't just as simple as recovering from your injuries because you had another hurdle while you're recovering. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, I had a few hurdles, even the first thing was I had to have surgery and I was in Alberta for a couple of weeks. Um, I was in hospital for six days and then friends that I met uh, through riding, just so many things that happened that were positive things from, from that crash um, took me in for a couple of weeks and I stayed there to recover and I could see the you know, follow up with the doctor who did the surgery, but I didn't have a place to come home to. And I didn't have a car. I didn't have a way to get around. I didn't have um, work. I had sort of uh, rearranged things because I was going to be away for that time. And so that was a big adjustment for me. And um, so I had to find a place to live again here for I stayed with friends for a couple of weeks while I found a place and uh, I found a place to live and started my recovery and rehabilitation because my shoulder was pretty badly injured and it pretty much had to be rebuilt. Then in March, uh, the end of March, I was just getting ready. I thought, you know what? I'm, I think I can get riding again and getting ready. I had to purchase a new motorcycle and getting ready to look at that and seeing, you know, what's available and what I thought I could, uh, would be good for me to ride. And I was walking. I was right across the street from my house and I was walking and I slipped and twisted my ankle and broke it. And then I needed surgery on that. I had to have pins and plates put on both sides of my ankle. And so then I was set back again. And then I was in a wheelchair because I couldn't use um, crutches because of my shoulder injury. So that was really... um, another cause for consideration because a cause for pause it's like now what I what do I do or what am I supposed to be learning from this evidently it wasn't time for me to get back on the bike yet and so that was um That was something else that that sort of delayed things. But I also like to say to people, you know, you can hurt yourself. You can break bones. You don't have to be on a motorcycle to break bones. I mean, that just happened. So that's why that happened to me. So people would say, well, you shouldn't have been riding. You broke your shoulder. It's like, well, I was walking and I broke my ankle. So there you have it.
0: So now you've got the ankle thing. I mean, that's enough to take the wind out of anyone's sails. You know, that sets you back. That's a, another blow, another thing to deal with like you said you're in a wheelchair now and I can imagine all the things associated with having to deal with your mobility, let alone your recovery for this. But you managed to get back on the bike. What was it like when you're when you're standing there ready to get back onto your motorcycle for the first time?
4: Well, if I could give any pieces of advice, Once you're starting to get back on a motorcycle, do as I did and try and use somebody else's motorcycle um, because you don't know how it's going to go. So the first time, the first time I was only two months after my ankle was broken and I just got my cast off. And the first thing I tried to do was make sure I could get my motorcycle boots on, which I could. And so BMW Motorrad has women's only demo days in British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. And for years, I organized those here for them. And they were having that at the end of May. And I wasn't involved this that year because I wasn't planning to be around. But I did go to that demo day and ask if I could ride a bike in the parking lot and they let me. And they even had to, I couldn't even push the bike up off the side stand because my ankle was still sore. It didn't have any, uh, it didn't have great power in it. And so I had to ask for help which they did and I rode it around just around the parking lot and that was just amazing I was very scared uh but I did it and that was my first time back and then uh, about a month later I I still didn't have my own bike but I was I got a press bike because of a story that I was working on and uh so I was able to try that out for a week or so and um I got back into it that way. But again, that was that was also frightening. And where I had to go to pick up the the press bike, I had to ride out maybe a quarter mile on gravel and it was raining. And this was my first riding back, really, other than the parking lot after my crash. And it was like, oh, boy. But I did it. I just took my time and I did it
0: are you fine doing that now? Or does the gravel bother you? Is, does it sort of bring back memories where you sort of shudder and go, no, I'm, I am I will not do that. Is that the feeling you had that day when you got on, and you're riding the gravel in the rain?
4: Well, it was the feeling. It was only the driveway. And I thought, this is a representative from Yamaha. He's looking at me and he's going, oh my God, we're letting her have a motorcycle. <laughs> but he, I don't think he knew the story. Um, and i I brought it back and it was safe and it was un, unharmed. Uh, but it was like, yes, it was very frightening. And so um, I still on gravel, I am hesitant, not nearly so much as I was before. And that's one of the things, you know, you start, start back into it. And a, a lot of people don't write on gravel in the first place. But I knew that if I was going to be doing any riding, and I ride a lot solo, and I love to ride long distances. And so even if you intend to stay on pavement, summer's construction season, you run into gravel, you can't avoid it. So I, I had to learn to be okay with that. But I did it gradually. And you know, the first few times I was so nervous and I'm trying to relax on the motorcycle gravel and and raked pavement, grooved pavement. When they're doing that construction and you go across that, and your motorcycle is all over the place um, or it feels like it is. Those are the two worst things. And so gradually the the amount of time, I don't see gravel out, but I have to go on gravel sometimes. And last year when I was in northern Alberta and, and doing my my trip there, of course, you're going to run into gravel and you've got to do it. I do have a limit, though. I'm not going on any roads that are like the one that I crashed on. I know that's above my skill level. And even um, even if I do learn, my, my confidence to ride that kind of a road, it just isn't there. And it's not worth the risk to me to take and to risk injury again. I just don't want to go there again. So. When it gets beyond a certain point, I'm just not, I just don't do it. I'm not going to muscle my way through it. I tried that. It didn't work. And so I do go on gravel and, you know, you get that feeling when your bike starts to slide around a bit or, you know, float around a bit on the gravel. And if it's, you know, not not too bad, I'm okay with that. I still feel it. And you, I get flashbacks when my front wheel, you know, when when I was just before the crash Uh, but I know that I'm, you know, I, I know what's happening and logically I can talk my way through it and that's okay.
0: When you say that you, you know, your, your confidence is affected and you're, you don't have the skill level for the gravel, does that tell you that you need to sort of increase your skill level, build up your confidence, or do you think that you're, you're not doing it because you feel it's a wise decision for you?
4: I'm not doing it because it's a wise decision for me. I don't have to go, you know, most of the time, most of the roads aren't that hard to, you know, as, as the road that I was on. Um, and so I can deal with those other roads. And if I can't, then I'm not going to go on them. Even camping, I go camping when I'm riding. I stay in tents most of the time. So you're riding in a campground. There's gravel there. There's campsites that you have to ride in. So those things I'm fine with, but it's just this prolonged thing on gravel and it's on, on really deep, rough gravel. And especially when I'm on my own. And so it's another consideration. When you're riding with another person, maybe you can take, maybe you can be a bit less conservative. I just, it's just a wise thing for me. And I'm not going to do it. I don't need to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it.
0: So is this knowing your limits or is it um, you sort of not wanting to push yourself or to, like you said, increase your skill level? Because I think what happens a lot of times is people think that they have to do these things. While I'm I'm riding a motorcycle, then I have to learn how to do this. And, and I guess what I'm getting to is, is it okay to say that for people? Is it okay to say, you know, look, I'm, I'm just not interested in doing that and I won't do it. Or should they be pushing their limits? Should they be learning the skills and practicing until they finally get it?
4: Excellent question. It's knowing what kind of riding you want to do and knowing what's right for you. It's just the same as when somebody's trying, you're riding with with a bunch of friends and they're trying to get you to go faster than you want to ride. Or when I see people in classes learning how to ride a motorcycle they don't really want to be there but somebody else wants them to be there and they're trying they're not listening to their own intuition or they're not standing up for that so it's really a matter of standing up for yourself knowing what you can do what's right for you if I if I decide down the road maybe I will decide that I want to learn more uh, about how to ride more aggressively Um, I doubt it but I may and if that happens then I will it's not that I'm, I'm doing it out of fear. I'm doing it because it's not for me.
0: How do you deal with it when you're riding with someone else, for instance, and they, uh, all of a sudden, they're going to go down this gravel road? And you mentioned about people, you know, not wanting to ride as fast as somebody else rides, for instance, for not being comfortable or have the skill level. How do you deal with that when you're riding with a group or some other people, your friends, and they're actually going to push your limits? They, not, they may not be pushing theirs. They may be quite comfortable and highly skilled enough to handle that style of riding, but you aren't. It's 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 a difficult one because I think a lot of people, especially, (laughs) males have this trouble of, um, uh, just knowing where your limit is, you know, to be able to say to yourself internally, Hey, Jim, that's enough. You're, you're pushing your limits.
4: I don't have any problem saying I'll meet you somewhere or I'm going to ride my own ride. You know, I don't, I don't want to hold you up. You go ahead. If you want, you take, you, you know, you ride however you want. I don't ride very often in groups. It's very rare that I ride with groups. Uh, for not for the reason of um, having to to say no or to ask them, to, you know, not to to go so fast. It's more because I, I just don't want to have to watch out for so many other people whose skills I'm not familiar with, and um, then that's putting myself at jeopardy. And I choose not to do that. Also, I do have some friends that I ride with and people whose skills I'm very comfortable with. Then I'm absolutely fine riding with them, and I do that those people aren't going to push me. They're not going to push me beyond my limits because they know the, the, the folly in that. And I have absolutely no problem standing up for myself and what's best for me. And I wish that, uh, you know, when I see people that are pushed or feel pushed, it's, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. You know, if you have an accident because you've been riding above your skill level, you've let yourself be pushed into that when you didn't need to.
0: You mentioned crash, and I've said crash or accident. That's something that um, the terminology seems to be changing now. I, I hear some people say that it's never an accident.
4: It's very rare that it's an accident. I call mine a crash. You know, An accident to me seems like something that you happens because of chance or happenstance. I made choices that were wrong for that situation, and that was the outcome. It wasn't anything random. It was because I had um, not handled the situation properly. So it's a crash. It's not an accident.
0: Let's talk about lessons here. Um, What lessons did you learn from this? And I mean, well, I guess for yourself, but also what lessons did you learn that you could pass on to other riders that may have had a get off at one point, either minor or serious and have to get back on their bike again?
4: Good question. Because you hear that a lot. people. you know, if, if if they've had a, a get off and, and they want to get back on their bike or sometimes they don't want to get back on their bike. And so the first thing that has to happen is you have to decide whether you want to ride again or not. And whether you, you know, you really want, if they didn't really want to ride in the first place and they had that happen to them, well, then that's going to help make up their mind. But you have to have um, the desire. You also have to be really patient with yourself because you have those scary moments. And uh, because something that wouldn't have scared you before maybe is, is a little bit more frightening, like the first time you go back on gravel or the first time as a, a urgent situation arises. It it might bring back those thoughts of when you had your get off. But so to be patient with yourself because you're still remembering when you're on the motorcycle, you're still remembering that crash and your body's still remembering it. So be patient with yourself, but just keep at it and keep at it. And I surprise myself even looking back after I've been doing some riding for now two years since uh, I've crashed. And it's... I'm pretty, you know, I've done a lot of writing and in a lot of situations that others would not have. And so I'm pretty pleased with that. I've been able to do that. But you don't start doing that. You do it gradually. Another thing that I had to learn is now I don't have full mobility in my shoulder at all. And so I've had to modify my writing because of that, because where it would go, where I normally would think it would have gone um, it doesn't do that anymore. So I've had to adapt and I've done that you know, quite successfully. But it's something that you have to retrain your muscles and retrain your mind and how you respond and how you react. And I'm also, I am more conservative in my riding and um, as far as speeds go, as far as distances between cars or vehicles on the road. Um, and of course, as we've talked about, where I choose to go and where I, I choose not to go. So those are, are some lessons. Of course, you can do it. The big thing to overcome is are those voices in your head. Other people have people telling them, especially if you know, maybe they've got children or grandchildren or a spouse or a partner says, I don't want you riding anymore because you know it's too dangerous and you hurt yourself. That's something they have to work out with that person if writing's for them, then it's for them. But if it's, you know, you've got to to work out your reasons for going back and how it's affecting those other relationships. For some people, it just upsets, you know, the whole family dynamic. And that's something I can't give advice on. They have to decide that for themselves, whether they want to go back to it or not.
0: Often when people refer to uh, a crash or something like that, that they've had a problem with, they talk about, you know, when you fall off a horse, you have to get right back on again to regain your confidence. almost like, um, I don't know, it seems seems a little sadistic. Um, However, I did grow up with horses and I did that a lot. I'm not sure if it helped me or not. But (laughs) when you head back out after having a crash that you understand that, you know, you did something wrong on, do you head right back out? To what you failed at so to speak when you had the crash and sort of push yourself to do it again or do you seek out instruction and say where did I go wrong maybe I can take lessons and increase my skill level
4: absolutely I did seek instruction I sought instruction from Clinton Smote, who's one of the top trainers in the world and he um, helped me understand what I had done wrong from a skills perspective and I have you know, sought his advice a lot of times. So that was, that was important to me. And I have taken, I have taken courses with him. I think it's important. Sometimes I didn't take a course after my crash, but sometimes that's a really good idea to help get you back and help get your skills back. I didn't really feel that I needed it. I did have a hiatus for almost 10 months between when I was, um, between when I was riding and when I was not, but, it was more just just getting comfortable and getting it gradual and then getting the bike that was right for me afterwards.
0: Is it important to deconstruct the crash afterwards so that you do understand? I mean, is that an important part of the process of recovery, deconstructing the crash, understanding where you went wrong and then seeking out the, the advice and the instruction and lessons that you need to sort of make sure that you don't make that mistake again? Or could people just say that, well, it was a fluke, you know, I made a mistake?
4: I think it's important to know why. I think it's also important not to overanalyze and not to just keep digging in at it and really being really hard on yourself for doing that. If you understand what happened, then you can take corrective action and and also if you don't know what happened, then how are you going to prevent it from happening again because you don't know what went wrong. So it's it's important to understand what went wrong and to understand your role in that and how you can avoid doing that in the future. It's also important not to listen to just anybody because it's important. It's your safety. And lots of people are going to have opinions. And most of those people, they they mean really well and they care and they're trying to give the best advice, but they're not as informed as somebody that is an instructor that has had practice, that knows how to deal with that situation. So it's really important to get really good advice, good, solid, uh, professional, knowledgeable, somebody that can help you through that. And also somebody that isn't going to push you too hard and say, come on, get over it, just get back on and do it. Because if you're not ready to do that, then you could be setting yourself back further. So it's going at your own speed. But you still have to push yourself a little bit because if you don't, you may not get very far because it is something that's frightening. Um, but every time you do it and you do something a little bit more, then your confidence comes back again. And it it, it just works like that. But you have to be out there and you have, to, you have to be out there with somebody that's really supportive in a knowledgeable way.
0: Liz, that's a great story and a lot of good information there. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Jim.
0: And that was Liz Jansen from her home in Orangeville, Ontario, Canada. And you know, there's so much more to be learned from Liz. Drop by our website, www.lizzjansen.com. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. And you can find her books online in print and ebook format on Amazon or all major retailers where you find books. Now, for more information on how to handle a motorcycle crash, at least from a, a legal standpoint, you can listen to an episode that we aired January 2016, where Matt Danielson, a lawyer from the Motorcycle Law Group, explained how to handle a crash, what you should and what you shouldn't do. And it's, it's probably worthwhile listening. It's certainly germane to what we've just listened to now. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give special thanks to the people that were on this episode. It's sometimes difficult to talk about crashes, and it takes a lot to put this thing together, so I want to say thank you to everyone. And of course, I want to thank our producer, Elizabeth Martin, for the wonderful work she does in the background. You don't hear her voice on here. And of course, you, the listener, thanks very much for listening. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can download all these episodes for free, as well as our other show, ARR Raw. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, consider clicking on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our show ARR Raw. So we really appreciate you helping out. And of course, we have built it on this model of donations and advertising to make the show work. Hey, and if you happen to be on Facebook, you can drop by our Facebook page and like our page. We'd appreciate it. We also post a bunch of stuff on there um, about each show and, and a bunch of things in between. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from ATV Moto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.